You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 34. Today our special guest is Greg Bantic and we're discussing the life cycles of a practitioner. Hey everybody, I'm Fiona Gitchum. And I'm Claire Pyers. And today we're talking with Greg Bantic. Hi Greg, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's our pleasure. In 1975, Greg started studying Chinese medicine in Sydney, Australia, and in the late 70s, he was part of a small group that started the first acupuncture college in Brisbane. In 1982, he spent the year studying in China and Japan. On his return, he arranged trips by several leading Chinese and Japanese scholar practitioners to Brisbane. And in 1986, he moved to San Diego, where he began teaching at the New Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. Greg served in curriculum advisory roles and as a senior faculty member and clinical supervisor for over 14 years. He helped develop the master's degree program. In 2001, he was invited to be academic dean and clinical director of the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine. He returned to Brisbane in early 2005 where he maintains a clinical practice and teaches to the profession. You can find his website at www.menla.com menla.com.au and on Facebook you can find him under Greg Bantic Chinese Medicine Clinic. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. If you really enjoy our show, please rate us on iTunes. Welcome to the show, Greg. It's really great to have you on. Thank you for the invite, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you also for providing this service to the profession. Oh, it's our pleasure and you know we learn so much from being able to speak to people such as yourself who have so much experience so you know this is the, the gift that keeps on giving for us as well. It, it seems like you have so much experience. I'm really glad I get the chance to have a conversation with you today. When I was studying, I uh, studied at UTS where there was a, one of the original teachers there from the first acupuncture college in Brisbane as well. So I think you're one of the second people I've met from that cohort in my journey. So um, ha what made you interested in Chinese medicine right back in the 70s? What kind of experience did you have with finding Chinese medicine? Yeah, I've been asked this a bit, and it's it's kind of I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I was going to university at the time and studying psychology and philosophy and um, politics, and I was really enjoying all of those subjects. But I took a year off and um, was hitchhiking and. I was getting work working temporarily in Sydney, and a friend said that there were six free lectures on uh, um, acupuncture being offered, and would I like to come along with him? And I didn't know anything about it, but I did. I had an interest in Asian philosophy, particularly East Asian philosophy, and there weren't too many opportunities to study Asian philosophy at the time. 
so I went along to the classes and I, I was um, really interested in the philosophy and also that it was practically applicable. You could use philosophy to help other people rather than just an academic discipline. And um, that got me hooked. And the rest is history, so they say. <laughs> You've been uh, involved in quite a few educational institutions as well there. So one of the things we're going to start with talking about with you today and what we mean by the topic the life cycles of a practitioner is that as a practitioner we go through so many stages to come into ourselves as a practitioner and to discover what kind of a practitioner we want to be and to be able to integrate that into the reality of our clinic as well as dealing with all of the learning cycles and um, not just educationally but on a personal level the learning cycles that we go through as a practitioner. So let's go back to the beginning which is the education um, and we want to hear from you about what is it to train to be a good practitioner and how can people identify a good course or what constitutes a good education in Chinese medicine? Uh, obviously it's a question that's interested me a lot. What, what does it take to be a good practitioner? Um, just kind of backing up a little bit, the, the um, most of the folks of my generation didn't think of um, becoming a part of a profession. Maybe most of us didn't think of ourselves as even being um, practitioners uh, and certainly not teachers. Um, so it was kind of like a, maybe, and, and back in those days in the early mid-70s, it was unusual. It, it, um, it, there just wasn't, nobody knew about acupuncture. Um, I think it was more, we were interested in um, a way of living, uh, a more responding to a calling rather than we were in a profession, uh, you know, a, a, a job. And um, I, I like to think um, that that was also um, part of what Chinese medicine can offer us. It's not just a, a job uh, and not just a way to do something worthwhile as a way of earning a living, but it's also a way of life. It's a way that we can personally develop and also help other people have more satisfying, fulfilling, healthy lives, not just symptom-free ones, not just ones free of, um, of uh, illness and disease, but even perhaps while they have enduring illness can still feel at ease and comfortable in their life. So some of that influences what I've thought about as an educator. I, I think that a good program, the way that I would set up a program would be to sit down with a group of um, colleagues and say what what are the qualities, this is maybe something that your listeners could do too, think about, is what are the qualities that you would most like to have in a practitioner that you went to see? And I think many of us would say that we would appreciate a good level of technical expertise, um, a good a good sense of you know certain scholarly uh, attributes, um, the capacity to research and read and memorize and uh, all of these sorts of things. We would uh, want good um, 
technical competence in the carrying out of various techniques and making a diagnosis, thinking through clinical problems, and we would want those all of those things. Uh, and we would perhaps also want people that we felt we had a strong connection to, that we were that we felt comfortable and at ease with, people that responded to us, but not just as a sore throat or a headache, but as a human being, and that may even be able to help us um, with the day-to-day -day, uh, stresses and strains that we encounter in our life, and that may be a guide to um, a, an even better, a richer and fuller life, not just um, somebody that could treat various problems as and when they arise. So I guess that's kind of how I think about um, where to start on writing a curriculum. Is there something else I can say about that? Or I don't want to um, endorse or you know, I don't know programs well enough to be able to say I think this one's better than that one or anything like that and in a way that's not so necessary or important. Maybe what I think is most important, of course, in an institution we need a reasonable level of administrative um, competency and proficiency. But the most important thing, I think, is the relationship that teachers and students have. And that one found enormously rewarding as a faculty member in the schools that I've been involved in was the incredible depth and skill and range of um, experiences that my colleagues had. Um, and I think that then students uh, can draw on so many strengths um, and that there there's, was always a good number of faculty that students felt they could talk to and rely on, that they could go through various difficult phases in their training like the first few days in um, being a, uh, an intern and all of the, the worry and concern we have as a student in that, that to have a good clinical mentor was really important and useful. So I would say that one of the most important things in trying to find a good program is to try to find good teachers within a program. And I guess another, um, you know, another important constraint is, you know, there's so many things that you could possibly put into the program. If you know, it could it could very easily be a ten year program, and so the, you know, knowing or making those choices about what to leave out and what to omit, but to maybe just provide enough enough of a framework and enough of a foundation so that students can then, after they graduate, go on and you know continue with self-directed learning into more specialised areas or more niched areas of, you know, acupuncture theory and or clinical approaches and herbal medicine and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I think that's definitely the case. And it's, um, uh, I think writing a curriculum, my experience with it is it's always what you, what are you going to leave out? Um, rather than what needs to be put in. There is so much that, that could be included. Maybe one way to think about it or a way that, that uh, I've thought of about it is that, so for example, herbal medicine and let's say acupuncture or the, the um, chi arts of Twena, uh, even being good at moxibustion, um, all of the kind of hands-on side of our profession, both of those are uh, um, 
they mutually complement each other, but they require different skill sets. But I think as a herbal medicine practitioner, you really need to know quite a bit about every individual herb, about herb ID, maybe even some, some things about growing. Um, but you also have to memorize a lot. It's um, learning a lot about how herbs are prepared, how they work in combinations, and then of course the, the many um, kind of streams of thought or schools of thought around how to what are the classical formulas and how they've been used. Um, and so it's it's that's a particular kind of skill set. And with the other the chi arts, it's a little more emphasis on um, palpation and developing um, like a felt sense uh, of points and channels and um, uh, it's kind of a little bit more conversational I like to think of it as you know that you, you, you start out start palpating and checking somebody's body and that informs you to maybe even change your point selection or use particular points and so they're two different skill sets and to kind of think about them this way is um, how do they help each other? How does learning one uh, make you better at the other? So for example, acupuncturists, people that, uh, that don't particularly want to prescribe herbs can still learn a lot from a little herbal knowledge and vice versa. Uh, and, and also then to, you can further break that down. So, so what does it really take to be a good acupuncturist? What sorts of skills would would uh, help you be better at that. So of course there are the things like uh, point location and the traditional functions and indications of points and point combinations and learning in that sense but a lot of the learning is how do you develop palpation skills? How do you develop a sense of how a body works energetically? Is that best done with a really good in-depth study of um, Tai Chi and Qigong so that, that acupuncturists have a felt sense in their own bodies and they've watched other bodies go through Tai Chi forms and all so that that informs how they think about palpation, what they're seeing and feeling in, in their patients. Um, so they're two kind of quite different skill sets and I think you can in trying to tease out and say what are the skills needed skills also needed by both are um, a sense of empathy and compassion, good listening skills, highly refined interviewing skills, um, uh, some other personal qualities of uh, kindliness and curiosity and openness and that on the part of a practitioner. So I think if we look at these various skill work out then uh, what are some of the best ways to train people to do that? Some of it will be in a classroom, some of it will be in practice settings, and some of it will be in treating patients. And so uh, that's kind of, in a nutshell, how I've thought about um, training programs. I think one of the things that uh, a lot of us learn fairly early on, either just when we're enrolling in Chinese medicine or when we're in our first semester, is that even though we're doing this, you know, this big degree, we're told that what we're learning here is just the tip of the iceberg and 
it's really only the basics and then once we graduate then we get the chance to spend 40 years learning a whole lot more and even then we'll only just have been begun <laughs> with Chinese medicine so one of the great things is you can just keep learning forever with Chinese medicine. Uh, clearly that's the case, you know, we, we, it is an ongoing learning process. The habits, the qualities and skills that are developed in our first few years of training are what often sets us on a certain direction for the rest of our career. Um, bad habits are hard to unlearn and uh, so I think our early education is maybe much more important than we give it credit for. The, the teachers that we're exposed to, the ways where the skills that we're encouraged to learn and develop, the uh, a sense of personal discipline to study hard, to really take on the career that you're you're endeavouring to help and influence in a positive way another human being's life and the life of their family and friends and so on indirectly. That this is uh, to be taken very seriously and that um, what you learn in school is a, a very, very important foundation to how you think and how you learn to study and what, what qualities you need to develop as a practitioner. I definitely also really feel the influence of the teachers that touched me the most, especially the teachers in my first year or my first two years that touched me the most. They definitely have become part of that thread, as you say, for how I unfolded once I graduated. Yeah, I have a similar um, a similar feeling as well. You know, there's certain, certain lines and certain phrases that... Um, you know, the, the teachers I had would would often repeat or, you know, just certain things that stuck with me that even now, you know, more than a decade later, I'm still hearing, you know, that the advice of, you know, just keep it simple. If you're ever in doubt, just go back to the eight principles, um, you know, various other, you know, little things that have just been so useful for me in clinic and as, you know, as an approach to, um, as an approach to you know further learning as well, but I think also like the personality of the practitioner themselves also to a certain extent will dictate the type of you know the type of practitioner they're going to become. You know, for me, like I had a my previous training was in chemical engineering, and that gave me a very you know, anyone who's done an engineering degree will know that they teach a very practical problem-solving approach, which is great as a Chinese medicine practitioner to have that problem-solving attitude and that problem-solving mindset. But also, you know, being very practical, I'm I'm far more interested in a practical approach and what's going to be useful rather than, um, you know, some of my other colleagues have done more, you know, a lot more... It will put a lot more effort into refining their knowledge or refining their skills, whereas for me I'm kind of more I'm looking at if it's going to be immediately practical, then I do it. But, you know, as we mentioned in a, in a previous episode that, you know, I'm not the world's greatest acupuncturist. Like as far as my technical skills go, that's not where my efforts have gone and I guess that 
yeah, there's so many factors that come into play with that as well. I think your comments kind of illustrate, amongst other things, the importance of the contact you have with early teachers. And, um, you know, like we may be turned off a particular technique or approach um, because we didn't particularly like a teacher, but that approach may actually serve us really well and our, our uh, capacity to be a good practitioner. And vice versa, we may be really uh, strongly influenced by a teacher that we really got on well with. Um, and, and so, uh, anyway, I think, I think our early education is really important. Some of the relationships that we have with teachers over time, you know, over the three or four years that we're in a program, are some of the closest that most of us have with teachers. It's often the case that not many of us have long-term, ongoing relationships with teachers. So. I, I, I think that our early education is important. Um, anyway, I, I guess I'm repeating myself, but you get my my passion here, perhaps. <laughs> Absolutely. So, how about when we're developing our clinical skills in school? That's one thing, but then the concept of developing resiliency, working with patients, is another and more of a reality that we come across once we've started working, what can you teach us about that? I, I think the early years are made a lot easier um, by having some close mentoring. Um, not necessarily somebody literally looking over our shoulder, but somebody that we can go to and um, talk about cases, what came up in a case, either um, from a, a how do I deal with these symptoms or I'm not sure how to diagnose this particular condition but also to be able to talk about the uh, I don't know if I said that very well I seem to distance the patient when I said this or they didn't come back again and I feel a bit lousy about you know so so to have mentors that kind of help us go through uh, and can guide and instruct us during these early years is enormously useful um, and, and there's no kind of substitute for um, attending classes, you know, uh, having, I still have a uh, once a month a group of us, uh, a few of us get together and uh, talk um, and sometimes we talk about cases, sometimes we talk about business problems, sometimes we talk about ethical issues, but I think sort of um, peer groups of um, trusted colleagues that we can talk to, uh, um, a wide variety of things that come up uh, is also really useful. It really does help to hear how somebody else would phrase a certain idea to a patient. Um, I think some things will come naturally to everybody and then there'll be other areas where it's just really difficult to figure out how you're going to express a certain piece of information to a certain situation so the more we get the chance to hear what other people would say this can really give us a great almost like menu of options for how we can communicate with patients in various circumstances. I, I think to begin the habit very early on even at school of being able to talk about what comes up in you as you're seeing people that are sick and going through real difficulties in their life what are some of the things that it brings up in you is one way 
that we need to take care of ourselves, but it's also an important ingredient in developing as a practitioner. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, that's such a tricky aspect to be able to put into, you know, an educational program of, you know, being able to deal with, like it's one thing to learn the medicine and, um, you know, to to know, okay, well, this is going to be my treatment protocol and this is going to be, you know, the approach that I'm going to use and it's going to be effective. But then the other aspects of it is, you know, the rapport building and the bedside manner because the treatment doesn't work if the patient doesn't come back or if the patient doesn't believe in you as a practitioner that you're the best person or that you've got the, you know, the confidence and the competence to be able to do it. And, and they're all things that are really, um, you know, they can be quite tricky to develop those skills and to, um, you know, to know the right things to say and to be able to, um, you know, learn from the experiences where patients don't come back. You know, I remember in my first year I had a, a patient with insomnia and, um, and I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, this is quite simple. And I think at the time, you know, it was it was a very straightforward, it was almost like a textbook case, I think. And, um, you know, I gave her some... It gave us some acupuncture, gave us some herbal medicine and, um, you know, rebooked her um, over the next couple of weeks. And I said, look, you know, we're looking for some improvement over this time and, and, we, did, and we did see it. But, you know, the way that I was communicating with her, she didn't really feel like she was getting the benefit from the treatment and she ended up, you know, asking for a referral to someone else. And I said, look, that's fine. You know, I've only, haven't been doing this for as long as some other people and, I referred her to a practitioner, but she couldn't get in for maybe, I don't know, two or three weeks that she had to wait. And in that time, you know, she stopped taking the herbs and, you know, she stopped having acupuncture with me and she realised that she was actually getting benefit from from my treatment during that time. And, and it was really nice of her. She actually rang up and she said, um, you know, she said, I just wanted to let you know that, um, you know, I'm really sorry with um, you know, with what I said, because I've realised now that I was actually getting benefit from from the treatment that you gave me. It wasn't until I stopped that I that I realised that I had actually improved, and um, and that was really good feedback for me to hear because it meant that there was nothing wrong with my treatment. <laughs> it was more just the way that I was, you know, communicating with her through that process and helping her to be able to identify that she was improving and to be able to, you know, set her expectations and to reassure her and, um, you know, all of those skills that, that go, that, that need to be part of, um, you know, of our treatments. Yeah, that's a, it's a great example. And I, I think, so the teacher part of me goes to, so what, what can we learn from these things and how can we identify and train ourselves in, so, so say for example, to, I think it's, it's not an uncommon experience that a lot of patients don't know that they're getting well or that they're changing. They're not, um, they come in and say, well, um, you know, the pain's not much better or it's no different. It can be easy for us to take that personally rather than to, say, go through a range of motion and talk to them about intensity and frequency and 
uh, duration and all of these things. And then it's often when you ask questions, you find, oh, the person is, they, they hear themselves go, yes, it is changing. It's no, nowhere near as bad as it is, or certainly not as bad as, bad as it was when I first came in. It's a kind of, um, it's always an interesting uh, phenomena when it happens uh, in clinic, and it still happens quite a lot to me. But I think to move away from taking that personally, or to doubt our modality, um, but to rather help the person inquire more deeply, uh, is a useful skill. Um, and and that, 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 that maybe that could be taught in schools too, or we could learn it in a more conscious way uh, as practitioners helping each other. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, as well as not taking it personally, also not taking it literally. Sometimes it just means that they feel like they're not getting better. It doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't any better. Yes, mm, sometimes exactly. it's diagnostic as well. <laughs> it's always diagnostic, yeah. I think. Yeah. It may be diagnostic in us too. Yes, both ways. Always, always. There is one other element about starting out in clinic to the, that um, uh, get business help. Um, most of us, maybe part of a good education is to, is to recognize that um, we don't have the resources as a profession to go out and get a job in a hospital or a big clinic or something like that, at least for most of us. And that um, what we're going to do to need to make a, a reasonable living is to also be um, business savvy. And that it's okay to go and get, uh, if we're not getting enough of it uh, in school, that we need to have business mentors to help us get through and to um, not go through too much pain and suffering over making a, a, a decent living, which we all deserve. You know, that's something that comes up, um, has come up quite a bit in the last few episodes and we, um, for listeners who may not have listened to all of our episodes, we um, did an episode with Jeff Shearer, episode 10 I think it was, it's called Help My Clinic Is Sick and Jeff runs a, um, a business um, business mentoring and business training course for um, for natural health practitioners. But, um, yeah, it's something that's, you know, as Brad Wisnant said in um, a few episodes ago, it's not the best acupuncturist that's going to make it in, in business. It's going to be the best business person. And so his recommendation is for continuing education in business that, you know, practitioners should put as much focus on and as much effort on honing their business skills as on their clinical skills. Um, because ultimately, you know, we serve our patients best by staying in practice. If we're, you know, if we're still in practice in five or ten years' time, that's, you know, that's as much, of, you know, that's offering as much to our patients as going to a course and learning a new, you know, learning a new type of herbal formula approach or learning a new acupuncture style or refining our moxa skills. Yes. Exactly. We, all, um, we, we need to be really good as well at, um, at creating the ways in which our patients can find us too because 
when you end up working with a patient for a long term, you know, like six months to two years, which really allows Chinese medicine to shine in a lot of chronic health conditions, there's often the experience for the patient of, you know, you're the practitioner for me, and where have you been in my life? I've tried 10 other practitioners, and, you know, I'm so glad I found you. And there's a lot of business skills behind us being able to make sure that we can be found. You know, I really agree with that. I'm sure a lot of us have heard, you know, that we we can sometimes have people who come to us and we are literally the last resort and they've followed so many other, you know, treatment protocols in other modalities and, you know, they just say, wow, I wish I had have known about you sooner. And so in a lot of ways, unless we are out there, you know, developing developing relationships and awareness that um, allow our patients to be able to find us more easily, then, you know, it's a real, you know, we're not allowing our medicine to, um, you know, to be, yeah, not to not be seen is, um, yeah, it's it makes it harder for us to get good outcomes for patients. And I, I would like to think that we can also add a lot of the uh, wise wisdom, the learning, the teachings from our tradition in running clinics ethically, in marketing and advertising ourselves ethically, uh, in not being caught by some of the extremes of marketing that we see, of trying to generate fear and anxiety in people in order to have them comply or to buy our services and so on, that we can use the better sides of um, marketing uh, in an ethical way, well informed by our own tradition. We can use even our business practices ex as examples of furthering the well-being of others and good health, a good life, not using our business practices to detract from those things. And Chinese medicine offers that, as a, or a, the wis our wisdom tradition offers that as, a, as the way, a way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, this is something I'm really, I really believe in as well. Um, you know, I, I run a, a multi-practitioner clinic and I employ my practitioners as staff and that's something that I, um, you know, I do because I believe that our industry deserves to have paid jobs for for our practitioners and that people who are running clinics you know, they should really look at, um, you know, ways that they can further support the profession as well. And, um, you know, financial, you know, people are worried about finances, but really it doesn't, it doesn't put you at risk financially if you've got, um, if you've got things set up well, but, um, you know, getting the energy flowing in the clinic helps to, um, and, you know, helping to get the practice running well you know, it serves, it then serves multiple people in multiple ways. You know, you're able to service more patients and to help more people and reach more people and you're also supporting the profession and people can, you know, have, <laughs> they, they, they can have a job and they can go for a, a mortgage or buy a house and, um, you know, having that stability and, and being able to support practitioners who aren't necessarily cut out to be entrepreneurs or business owners. Um, you know, I think there are there are some of us who do that really well, and there are others that, you know, they they really just want to 
that you know they just want to be practitioners they don't want to be business owners and so um yeah a call out to anyone who's a real entrepreneur <laughs> i challenge you to uh to employ practitioners there you go <laughs> yeah no, and thanks for doing that too claire but and i think i think um our medicine teaches us that we are interdependent we're not we don't live just by ourselves we're relational beings um, we're influenced by the weather we're influenced by the moods and the health and well-being of the people that we're close to so to also take this as as um, uh, how how might ideas like that influence how we run a business, a clinic? That a clinic too is a chi field, and that the way our colleagues are doing in the clinic is important to the well-being of everyone in the clinic. The way the cleaner and the reception staff and everybody in the clinic is doing is influencing the way all of the other people in the clinic are doing, including our patients. Um, that if, if uh, patients are really ill and it's clear that they're ill and suffering awfully, that that influences our reception staff, all our support staff, as well as us. And so what do we do as clinicians to care for each other in the clinic space, in this clinic chi field? Um, and and to so to again bring our wisdom uh, to not just in the treatment and management of disease, but in the care and management of, of all of us participating together, and by extension, the kind of work you guys are doing via these the podcast for the the greater profession. You know, we often in our early years in practice, you know, we're working really hard and we're maybe working two jobs whilst we're establishing ourselves as practitioners and often working quite long hours to try and get things up and running. And sometimes, you know, we can develop bad habits in that in that time and we don't necessarily <laughs> slow down um, later on to uh, to compensate. Can you um, can you talk a little bit about practitioner burnout, Greg? Uh, having gone through it at least once, um, somewhat familiar with it, and, and I think that in my case it does come from some um, bad habits. I think that there are many pressures that, that bear on us as clinicians that we often don't acknowledge or talk about enough with each other, and maybe we even need um, professional help beyond our colleagues. But um, there's, we're, we're, of course, subject to all of the sorts of um, causes and conditions that every one of our patients is. Um, that we have personal problems. Um, we, in spite of, say, registration in, the, in Australia or licensing in the States, we're still, to some degree, social outcasts. We're not part of the medical mainstream. People, uh, a lot of people, don't, either don't know about us or are skeptical about what we do. Um, even our friends, um, uh, that um, many practitioners are, 
stressed financially. Uh, it's very easy for practitioners, I think, in the early days to equate patient numbers with uh, self-esteem. Uh, I still do that to some degree. That you know, two or three people cancel in a day. I think I've done something wrong, rather than maybe it's just school holidays or something uh, completely unrelated to me. But um, we we function under. It's not always easy to know some of these things that um, that tangle us up. Uh, some of our own ideals, like we're never meant to make mistakes, or um, that death is a failure, a death of a patient is a failure, for example, um, that seeing too much pain in our clinic and not enough joy is unhealthy for us, it's difficult for us, it's a, an unreasonable stress for us. Um, for a practitioner, uh, often a cry of help is weakness, you know, seen as weakness, uh, either by ourselves or by our colleagues. Um, we are also part of our various nations' social safety net, but to help patients. I'm not sure how many times I've sat with patients who are really seriously ill, and I can't do anything but come and see me. I can't refer them to um, you know, a, a resort where they may get all their food taken care of, really good, well nourished and I, I don't have any resources other than what I offer. Which, um, people really struggle and not be able to provide some of the resources that you know would, be, would really be of benefit to them. Um, that we often don't take very good care of ourselves. Um, we often don't take very good care of each other. We're, we often have um, uh, a sort of feeling of one-upmanship uh, amongst ourselves, which doesn't help any of us. Uh, we're often bullied by insurance companies, uh, maybe by employers, and sometimes, sometimes often by patients. Um, so there are many uh, stresses and strain. Um, we can feel intense psychological pain ourselves just being with people that are really, um, really distressed. Or we don't get people come in and say, you know, you know what, my life's going incredibly well. I can't believe that this is happening. I can't believe that that's happening. Or maybe that happens, but most of the time it's about things that are going wrong. We of course also have relationship problems, uh, you know, uh, all, all, all sorts, our own maybe mental illnesses or in the form of insecurities or um, shortcomings, our own blind spots. Uh, all of this is, um, can build up as um, secondary trauma in the case of the sorts of things that we see that are difficult to cope with in, other, in our patients and also in compassion fatigue. Um, sometimes, you know, what we refer to as burnout. And uh, uh, this is a very real problem. I've just recently had a colleague call up and say that they, they've had a very successful practice for many years, um, done very well, and that recently through a number of different circumstances, 
things have gone in the other direction and they're really struggling and considering suicide. It was only a little while ago that another colleague of mine whom I'd been talking to on the phone who was also struggling uh, did commit suicide. So it's a very real problem in our profession. I suspect that there are many people that um, don't go to that degree or don't suffer to that degree but give the profession up, just go on and do something else that feel like they can't make it either financially or the, the stress of dealing with people. So I, I, I do think we need as a profession to um, take this uh, more seriously to uh, reach out to each other, to help each other, but also as practitioners to be very clear about the nature of the work that we're undertaking. That it's, it's very difficult, it's very demanding, it's very challenging, that if you really um, are open to um, patients, that you are going to start to uh, feel and think and dream um, and because we are relational beings we are going to be influenced by our moods and our feelings and all are going to be influenced by the people that we're associating with and to develop skills to firstly to know that and then what do we do with um, all of the stuff that's beginning to emerge and bubble up I think that's such an important topic that you raise there um, and even that within the standard Chinese medicine training even though we are taught these Eastern philosophies and this interconnectivity and energy awareness there's not a lot of training about being an empathic being and how to manage that yourself and how to refill your energy other than for those that delve into Qigong or perhaps other areas that teach them about that and what comes to mind for me is that you know people who are in other professions like psychologists are taught that when they're in practice it's important for them to also be in therapy um, not assuming because they're struggling but just as a standard matter of course for them to have a place to discuss how their practice is affecting them and for them to have an outlet and a support and a mentor in that in that way and I really think that this is something that a lot of practitioners in our field could benefit from really integrating into their own lifestyle we know that for a lot of us we know we need to integrate into our lifestyle our own practices whether that's that we do qigong or we meditate or you know we adhere to our own nutritional knowledge but just integrating into it as well that we also have counselling for what we experience and that we continue to grow and learn how to manage our being as a really empathic vessel. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree entirely and, and I think a quality of a good practitioner is to be empathic or to be resilient to, and I think that these words encompass qualities like tolerance. That we can actually tolerate quite a range of um, presentations in, in patients, patients that are very distressed, really ill, 
uh, close to death or they may also be very violent and even um, threatening towards us um, that um, uh, but w they may have very different views and ideas some that are even distasteful to us but that as practitioners we can tolerate and find ways to help them uh, is part of uh, kind of resiliency or being an empathic being I think being curious, genuinely curious about how does this person function? How is this mind in front of me work? How is it? How does it go from here to there? How does it get to be, um, you know, one day happy, at ease, and calm, and then maybe only hours later, very, very depressed and and despairing. Um, to, to really take this on um, is, is a very difficult task as a human being. One thing, I, I, I like the idea, I like the model that you mentioned of the way that the um, psychology profession uses um, uh, mentors, um, I forget what they call it now. Supervision. But, uh, uh, supervision, yeah. You know, and that, that we could we could use supervision. We, I think we all need supervision at least at times. But how to how to take Asian ideas and learn to be supervisors and to be supervised under our own kind of tradition, as well as whatever else we might learn from the wisdom of psychology. But I think that there are many, many, say, of the meditative traditions in East Asian meditative, meditative traditions, uh, learning contemplation and reflection, uh, really learning self-honesty. What is it that I'm really going through? What is? What are the thoughts that this particular person seems to bring up in me? What are the feelings and so on? That sort of honest uh, reflection and introspection. Um, are also really important, um, really important skills to develop. I think when we're not doing that, we run the risk of pretending that there isn't something running in us, and that's when the tendency to withdraw in some way from patients and maybe speed up, see more, not listen to their stories, or uh, in some way defend ourselves from the being too empathic, too sensitive, too, uh, to not feel too much ourselves, that can actually lead us into uh, mischievous clinical and business practices. I agree. I agree with that. I think there's, um, you know, being able to learn the skills of you know, becoming a vessel or a sounding board for your patients to be able to express and display their disharmony on any level, but for us to not, um, you know, and to be able to create a safe place for them and a safe space for them to be able to do that in a way that doesn't interfere too much with our own inner well, what's the word that I'm looking for? Our own inner balance, I guess. Um, I think for me, 
you know, I was, I was quite lucky in some ways that, you know, when I was a teenager, I, you know, I had a really hard time um, and I thought, wow, this is really going to go one way or the other. And so I decided to, um, I decided to put myself into counselling and, and I got so much out of it, you know, and over the past probably, over the past 20 years, I've spent the majority of the time in some form of counselling. You know, I found um, a really great Jungian analyst and I spent about, you know, seven or eight years in analysis and that was, you know, that was a really amazing process of, you know, having having an ongoing relationship with a therapist who really knows, you know, really knows you very well and, you know, I started to use it as much for, you know, reflection on my own clinical practice and the way I was interacting with some of my difficult patients and just being able to work through those feelings and reactions and it was really useful for me and it you know I think um, without that it would have been so much it would have been so much more difficult for me to be able to continue in practice and to be able to practice the way that I do now um you know, I don't know that I would have been able to survive this long as a practitioner, you know, for me, because I'm such a sensitive person that, um, you know, being able to embrace that sensitivity in a way that doesn't leave me feeling vulnerable to other people's energy and other people's, um, you know, the the stories that they have and the, the, the misfortunes that people experience is sometimes, you know, it can be so heartbreaking to hear and you know, we have to be we have to be able to learn ways to protect ourselves against being injured by that too much. We do, and uh, I appreciate you sharing your own experience. Okay, because that, maybe that's what we need to do more often. That um, it's okay to talk about these things, and uh, you know, I've used therapy at various times too, and I think it's enormously useful. Uh, I'm also a, a long time Zen meditation practitioner and, and both my personal practice but my interaction with teachers has been invaluable in helping me understand what can be going on inside me in clinical interactions but I think it also helps me uh, help my patients more skillfully too so you know this is it's Maybe part of the problem we have is it's like we, or what we don't recognise or or value enough is that um, if if this is a calling, a vocation, we're talking about improving or wanting for ourselves to have a better life, a life with less internal conflict within ourselves, less of an unfriendly relationship with our own experience. Um, and that in the process of doing that, we find that we find that we become more effective, uh, more resilient, more open, more curious, more tolerant with others. And so, uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful career, wonderful profession, if that's one's goal. Mm, I think we we get so much out of having taken this path as well. Like you're saying, you know that we can only take our patients as far as we can take ourselves in terms of that internal cultivation and hopefully that's what they're drawn to in choosing a practitioner as well. So I find often we're not only 
just trying to support ourselves with that kind of empathic resiliency but everybody's empathic and I think people are becoming more sensitive and often our job is to pass on to the patient what we've learnt about how to carry on as an empathic person. And I, I think this is, this, um, some people maybe say, well, this isn't really medicine, but I think it actually is East Asian medicine. It may not be what we're used to from our culturally dominant medicine, but I think medicine is not just about alleviating symptoms or kind of restoring some low-level functioning. It's about flourishing as a human being. It's about really understanding what it is that we want and need and um, for our lives. And I think that's uh, part of a practitioner's role. It's, not, it's more than just, you know, you guys have been doing this long enough to know that mostly we can fix a sore throat and get rid of some acne and uh, cure a cough and things like that. But uh, life's a bit more than just alleviating those sorts of symptoms, in my opinion. And I think East Asian medicine really offers so much more. Mm. And some of the areas where Chinese medicine excels are really areas that I would put under the category of medical and physical symptoms that have arisen from human sensitivity. For example, the area of allergies. My personal journey into Chinese medicine started when I, in my early 20s, I was already allergic to a number of things in my childhood, but I kind of just became really empathically blown open and allergic to everything and was covered in eczema and hay fever all the time and, you know, big emotional roller coasters. And a lot of it was just because I was receiving my environment and a very high volume and so uh, for me that that became a physical medical condition and I always say you know the way that I learnt the way my pathway out of being highly allergic to everything was actually to learn how to cultivate my sensitivity and to take it on as my medicine that I had to offer the world and and as a skill rather than when, when we're not empowered in our skills of sensitivity, they can become very real physical symptoms. So I've had a tendency to attract patients who are going through that kind of thing. And I know at least in their experience, what we're doing is medicine when we spend half the session talking about being empathic or you know dreaming about things before they happen or areas like that. So they're not necessarily conversations I have so much with Western medical professionals or other people who may be judging that aspect of my practice but you know I think there's there's definitely going to be more and more uh, science behind how our empathy and our sensitivity can really be a, a solid aspect of medicine. Yeah and I, I think for us as a profession we've kind of done a lot of the groundwork you know we have um, good schools, um, we have um, professional associations, we have licensing and registration. In some ways we haven't really come into our own. That's much of the same of what has been 
done by many other medical professions. What is it that we can really add to our society? What is it that we can really add something new and refreshing and much needed in our um, healthcare provision? And that is that it is possible to, uh, through recognizing things like our interdependence, we are relational beings, that my mood is dependent on your guys' moods. My happiness is dependent on your happiness. And that for me to work as hard on your happiness will help make me happy. This is, um, this is you know, just like a simple example of what, is, what it is that we could really, um, well, there's so much richness in our, in our worldview, our philosophical worldview, that we could, could really significantly help our society in this modern, you know, in our contemporary age. You know, I really agree with that. I, I see that, you know, you're looking at some of the other professions and there seems to be so much more scope and potential for depth of, you know, more community and more support within our profession. And I think we're still in the very early days of being able to, you know, work on boosting the chi and the yang and the yin of our profession as a whole. You know, we're we're very, um, we haven't really kind of branched out in that regard, I think, to the level that we can and levels that would be possible for us to achieve in, in just being able to create more of that, yeah, just just more chi for Chinese medicine profession globally. Yeah, and, and I don't just mean this in a kind of psychological sense either, but to for us to continue to explore how do our herbs work, I don't necessarily mean to explore in the lab, but say for example that when we eat ginger, that it has a spicy warm taste in our mouth and we can feel that spicy warmth go down to our stomach and that uh, um, confirms what we would read in a book about it or that when we eat uh, horseradish, you know, particularly wasabi that a lot of us are familiar with when from uh, eating sushi, that, that also has a warm spicy taste in our mouth but it definitely goes to our nose and our eyes, our sinuses. And so that, that to say we don't need to go down the same road of uh, biochemical actions or a active ingredients but to go to this to these cheer mechanisms and say, well, here's how spicy and warm herbs stimulate or activate or catalyze certain body functions. And they do it often in very specific areas and ways in the body. And that these can become better known. They can become felt. They can become obvious and clear to us and to our patients. And that this kind of coming back to uh, an individual and personal experience of our lives as opposed to uh, doctors as experts telling us more what we should think and feel. I think it's interesting and it makes me um, remember, you know, that idea of, you know, continuing to put thought and reflection into you know the mechanisms of our of our practice and the ways in which the various tools that we use work that you know that 
it's not all just been said and done according to, you know, what was written 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. You know, you were saying right back at the start of the episode, you know, that you were that you learned Chinese medicine originally in the 70s and, you know, from I've heard from other practitioners that back then there was, you know, there was like one book. <laughs> there was very limited information and so that experiential learning um, in your in your education was probably a lot more so than what it is today where there's, you know, there's an abundance of books and webinars and podcasts and there's, you know, you can fly around the world and learn from all these people and there's so many more um, English-speaking people providing education on so many different aspects that, you know, a lot of us feel like that, you know, that we don't have necessarily that framework or that that um, the confidence to be able to listen to our own experience and to, to gain an understanding of, of the world around us. One example, I remember the very first day I went into clinic in the Guang'an Men Hospital in Beijing in early, uh, when I was probably early 82, and um, the doctor, the clinic knew that I had been teaching for a while and had been in clinic for a few years, and um, when I went in, um, the doctor, the Dr. Shah that I was working with, he said to me, um, oh, come over here and put in stomach 36. And uh, that was the very first thing he said to me. So he got me to put in stomach 36, needle stomach 36 on him and um, get a sensation and take it out again. And he said, now I know where to start. My name is Dr. Shah. What's yours? And it wasn't so much about my resume or my curriculum vitae, but it was about what I could do, what, what was actually demonstrable. And then he saw what I could and couldn't do, and he had a, some sense of how to then guide me as to what I needed to know. And um, I think that's been served as a model for me for as a teacher and as a clinician, but also... A, I've continued to seek people out like that, that it's it's not always books and, and classes and podcasts and all of these things are enormously useful, but we do really need to closely explore our own experience, our, the way our minds work, the way we function. What's the best way for me to practice? It's going to be different. It has to be different because than, than the way you two would practice because we've been shaped by different causes and conditions. And so it's not about being the same, it's about actually making Claire and Fiona and Greg flourish and be the best that they can possibly be, which requires some things that are similar and some things that are really different. You know, I think it's so important that we that we have the, the prompting and the, the reminders you know, because we all have, I guess, some level of inspiration that happens in this regard when we're students, you know, the, the moment that the penny drops and, wow, chi is everywhere and, <laughs> you know, we kind of all walk around a little bit drunk and high and giddy for a few weeks or months as that kind of sets in and we start trying to assess, you know, lots of different things in our lives according to yin and yang and, you know, in those eight principles. And um, I think, yeah, we 
we can sometimes lose that with you know with the the polar extreme of you know <laughs> deriving things from first principles versus evidence-based medicine you know in some ways they're poles apart but then in other ways they're they're not necessarily and um, how we yeah how we integrate them into our practice and how that might change over time as well I think is um is something worth talking about and <laughs> I guess for our listeners they're thinking well <laughs> this is meant to be an episode about the life cycle of a practitioner and we <laughs> we're getting there I guess we we're talking about many different aspects of practice and and I wonder Greg if you can talk about that a bit as well I mean obviously there's different cycles that we all go through as as practitioners that it's not necessarily just this linear curve from or this linear line from you know when we're graduated to where we are now um, you know there's various night and day cycles and light and dark and feeling like we're doing really well and then other times feeling like we're not and I remember one of my um, clinic supervisors at, at uni said to me you know I spent the first five years you know really excited about what I'd learned but feeling like I was a bit of a fraud and then the next five years feeling like I'd really kind of nailed it and was really doing awesome things for my patients and then the next five years after that felt like I was a fraud again you know and what am I doing here and you know and I found that really fascinating but also reassuring that you know someone in there you know who had between 10 and 15 years experience or more by that stage but during those years of 10 to 15 years in practice had felt you know for such a long time that um, you know they weren't really confident in what they're not confident but you know had kind of lost a bit of their mojo I guess and I found that a really interesting thing to to hear and reflect on from an experienced practitioner and um, and I remember hearing you speak at a conference a few years ago and um, yeah I thought you would be a great person to to provide your perspective on you know the the different life cycles that we go through as practitioners yeah, well, I can. I would um, concur with your clinic supervisor. That, uh, you know, we do, we do go through cycles. I've had um, long patches where I've thought that I've made a mistake and that I'm in the wrong profession and that I should have chosen something else. And um, and then other times when I'm enormously grateful, and I am really enormously grateful. I've met some wonderful people as students, patients and colleagues over the years um, but I still find it difficult. I, I still find it difficult financially, I still find it difficult um, uh, emotionally, not not all day, every day but um, certainly with certain people um, it's challenging, it's really difficult. Uh, it, it might be in the form of just seeing how much they're suffering um, but it might be also because I feel puzzled uh, or helpless. Or I think maybe what changes over the, the years, and I, I hope this is the same for my colleagues, is that we get better at um, getting help for ourselves. You know, we get better at knowing um, that uh, when certain things come up, that there's something that I can do about it. Um, that uh, you know, some keys for me uh, if I'm starting to feel. I'm get, noticing hypersensitive reactions to, oh, you know, something like people cancelling or rescheduling, or if I leave a clinic day and I'm feeling a bit unfulfilled or unsuccessful in helping patients, or 
if I'm starting to slide into some avoidance behaviors of or denial, you know, if I catch myself um, hesitating to go and see that patient that I know is waiting in the waiting room because I know it's going to be difficult, if I starting to feel a bit sleepy in clinic and zoning out and so on, especially in talking directly to a patient and I catch myself, I don't, don't know that I heard those last couple of sentences. That if, if I'm noticing things like that, then I need some help. Uh, I, I know that there's something in my, that's going on for me that I'm not um, catching, I'm not knowing and it's starting to cause some mischief. And also, of course, when um, there's a, a particular case that I just don't understand, I have a, a, a network of, and not just Chinese medical practitioners, but also doctors or dentists or psychologists or lots of other different practitioners that I can call up and say, am I missing something here? What am I not seeing? What am I not getting? And there's a part, of perhaps, of in the life cycle, in our life cycle as practitioners, of um, um, how do we how do we learn to recognise in ourselves when something is going on that's causing some mischief for myself or for my patients and my workmates, uh, and uh, what do I do about it? You know, what, what what are the warning signs, and then what are the steps I can take? Perhaps another part of the life cycle of a practitioner is that there's no arriving. There's no, finally, here it is. There's just an, uh, an, the ongoing joy and pressure of learning. Mm. Both a very expansive and comforting awareness that there is no arriving. And I like how you call it mischief. <laughs> and you're looking at those behaviours. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> they, those behaviours that are diagnostic that we may have to attend to something within ourselves. Thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing these things with us, Greg. This conversation has woven through a labyrinth of surprise subtopics for me, uh, but it's been really enjoyable and helpful. That's for me too. I think our listeners will get a lot out of today's episode. You know, it's I think it's very refreshing to hear, you know, a very senior and experienced practitioner, you know, discuss things in with such humility and with such openness and you know, having very real discussions that it's not about, you know, I'm a better clinician than you or I know more than you. It's hey, you know, we're all we all have good days we all have tough days and sometimes the tough days go on for a while and you know what do we do in those times I think you know what you've shared today I think will really be of great support and comfort for a lot of practitioners to hear well thank you it's it's uh, it really is good for me to uh, be able to talk to both of you and I really do thank you again for providing the this um, opportunity for us to share as a profession but it's so good for me to know that I can still contribute and, and feel a part of uh, my community and uh, to be able to do that via this new technology is really amazing. And I look forward to any feedback or questions or follow-up from this too.
Yeah. Well, if any of our listeners do have any questions uh, for Greg or, or even just comments on this episode, you can post those on our Facebook page uh, where we've posted this episode. Uh, I think, Greg, you're on Facebook, so Greg will even see your questions there. And um, please do join in the discussion. That's what we're here for. Yes. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. And thank you, thank you to our listeners. We'll, uh, we hope you enjoyed today's episode and we look forward to seeing you again next week.